Today I'm speaking with General Michael V. Hayden. General Hayden is a retired United States Air Force four-star general and the only man to have ever run both the NSA and the CIA. He did that sequentially. He is currently a principal at the Chertoff Group, a security consultancy founded by the former Homeland Security Secretary Michael Chertoff. And he's also a professor at George Mason University at their School of Public Policy, Government, and International Affairs. And he's the author of the book, Plain to the Edge, American Intelligence in the Age of Terror, which is well worth reading. Uh, and this, is, this was a slightly unusual interview for me in that it was a straight interview. Uh, the general and I had some technical difficulties getting on Skype. It was amusing not to be able to get on Skype with the former head of the NSA and the CIA. Uh, so we had to conduct this interview on FaceTime. All of that wrangling took a little while. And his schedule was tight, so I had about a half hour for this interview. So it could not be one of my leisurely conversations. It was really just my questions and his answers. But I think you'll find it interesting nonetheless. We talk about many things. We talk about the ethics of spying and the trade-off between privacy and security. And we get into Edward Snowden and the consequence of his leaks. And I also get uh, General Hayden's opinion about the Russian hacking of the U.S. election. So, please enjoy. And now I give you General Michael V. Hayden. I am here with General Michael V. Hayden. General, thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you very much. Well, listen, let's just, bre I want to talk to you about your book because it is fascinating. It is plain to the edge, American intelligence in the age of terror. But let's just talk about your background for a moment. You, you are a retired four-star general in the Air Force and then went on to head both the NSA and the CIA. Am I right in thinking that no one has run both those organizations before? That's, that's right. I'm, I'm the first one to have been head of CIA and NSA. But uh, an additional wrinkle, uh, the head of NSA is always military, so I was in uniform for that. A bit unusual, but I was also in uniform for most, not all, but most of my time at CIA as well. Did you know you wanted to go into intelligence, or did, were you expecting a more ordinary career in the Air Force? Actually, intelligence is what I asked for. I was a history major. The Air Force was kind enough to let me get a master's degree before I came on active duty. I thought the, the art and discipline of history well suited me for intelligence work. They apparently agreed mm -hmm. and allowed me to go ahead and, and do that. And for most of my career, you know, a good two-thirds of it, I, I was in what could only be defined as intelligence jobs. So now we're going to talk about things that I think most people in the general public only dimly understand, and, I, and I, I count myself among them, not being among the things that are only dimly understood, but among the people who dimly understand them. <laughs> what is the main difference between the CIA and the NSA? How would you characterize those organizations? So, so what we have done in the United States, and you don't have to do it this way, but we did, is that we organized our big, muscular national intelligence agencies by the way they collect information. And, and so NSA collects information through intercepted communications and communications in all of its forms, uh, phone calls, faxes, emails. 
CIA gathers information through human sources, uh, mm. the, the classic spy stuff that you see in the Hollywood movies. So that, that's, I mean, there are other differences, but that's the fundamental dividing line between the two. And what, what's the relationship like between the, the various branches of the intelligence community? I guess you could throw the FBI in there as well. Are there, yeah, are there exactly. rivalries? Or? Uh, look, I mean, look, they, these are all bureaucracies, and that's good news and bad. I mean, bureaucracies are how humans organize, them, organize themselves in order to be most efficient with a specific task. But, you know, the, the way I, I, I've always put it is that, is that it takes one kind of culture to intercept communications for which you are not the intended recipient, that's NSA, and another kind of culture to suborn people to give you information that, frankly, the organization to which they belong doesn't want you to have. Mm. Those, are diff- those are different things. And so they build up a, a bit of different kinds of cultures. The magic is to preserve enough of those cultures so that they can actually do what they're supposed to do in the first place. But they also cooperate and synchronize and harmonize their activities. And is there efficient sharing of information at this point? How yeah, would you? Yeah, there, there is. There is. And look, if my, my irreverent way of answering that, if uh, God were giving us a grade and God were marking on a curve comparing us to other countries, we'd get an A. But neither God nor the American people should mark us on the curve. It should be on an absolute scale. And, and so the sharing of information, again, created in these different kinds of organizations, the sharing of information is something that you always want to improve on. So described that way, the CIA and the NSA have different liabilities. I think at one point you, you say this in the book, that the CIA has often been faulted for, in its use of human intelligence, for collaborating with bad people. The NSA has the opposite problem. They have the, the problem of eavesdropping on good people. <laughs> well, so here's here, that's a great way of, of 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 teeing it up. So, from time to time, when CIA goes through a dark period, uh, it's generally criticized for the company it keeps. All right, because you 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 know, uh, it's Boy Scouts generally don't know the secrets you need to know, and and, and so you establish relationships uh, with folks who who are out there in these targeted organizations. NSA, as you cor- correctly suggest, NSA is out there a bit cleaner in the American culture. You know, it's technology. It's not suborning someone. It's intercepting communications. But as you suggest, in the modern world, it's hard to intercept the communications of people who, frankly, I think you want us to listen to without bumping in to the communications of Americans. And there's always great distrust that NSA intentionally or inadvertently listens to people it shouldn't be listening to. Perhaps you should define this term signals intelligence or SIGINT. Yeah. So we put a a three-letter syllable in front of the word INT, which means intelligence. And so you have IMINT, imagery intelligence, the picture guys. You've got SIGINT, signals intelligence. That's the NSA folks. They the electrons and photons of modern communication, and then UMINT, human intelligence, which is the work of, of CIA. The politics of spying are pretty interesting because there are many things we do which everyone knows or assumes that we do. And so they're, they're essentially open secrets, but when a secret is made explicit, 
people seem to react very badly to this information. So I'm thinking in particular of our surveillance or, or claimed surveillance of Angela right. Merkel's cell phone that was revealed, by, I believe, by Edward Snowden, or at least alleged by Edward Snowden. And right. you know, this, this created an international incident. But isn't it the case that all major governments, both our allies and, and not, assume that this sort of spying goes on all the time? They, they do. And in their quieter moments, they understand and they don't, they're not enthusiastic about it, but they do accept that that kind of stuff is an accepted international practice. So I, I was in Germany uh, visiting at a conference during the height of the kerfuffle we had after Snowden's allegations. And I, I told a story to the, to the Germans, which, which was simply, you know, after Senator Obama was elected, you know, he had run his campaign through his BlackBerry. And of course, we saw that and said, uh, Mr. President-elect, don't, don't know that you should be doing that now. And he <laughs> just refused to give it up. I mean, he's quoted, I think, on CNBC back in 2000, late 2008. He sounded like a Second Amendment bumper sticker. He said, they're going to have to pull mm -hmm. it from my fingers right. in order to get my BlackBerry. So we said, okay, we got it. You're going to keep it, but can we borrow it for a little period of time? And we kind of tightened it up and the president-elect agreed to limit some of his usage on it. But what's the backstory on that? The backstory is we were telling the soon-to-be most powerful man on the, in the most powerful nation on earth that if he used his BlackBerry in his national capital, his emails, text messages, and phone calls would be intercepted by a big number of foreign intelligence services. And mm -hmm. we, we didn't rend our garments or feign outrage. We just understood that's the way things are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so now in your book, you describe how stressful the job of being a SIGINT analyst can be. And, and you describe situations that I think most of us really haven't thought of in any detail. So for instance, you talk about people who spend weeks and months listening to the phone calls of specific targets and getting to know them very intimately. And then when these people are discovered to be terrorists and are located and, and direct action is taken against them, which is to say they're killed, these analysts then witness the aftermath. They're monitoring the calls of distraught right. family members. And, and, and this can be very stressful work that, that some intelligence op operatives find they just can't do. We, we had that experience at, at, at NSA because that's what they do. And it's even worse than you've laid out. I mean, sometimes when you've done all your homework and you've created exquisite intelligence, and you know the location of the phone, but you want to be absolutely certain this wasn't the day that this bad guy gave his phone to his cousin, mm -hmm. all right, for whom we have no, no interest, that you actually, during an intercept, might turn to the analyst and say, is that him? Is that his voice? And the analyst knows full well that if the answer is yes, you're going to go do what it was you suggested, take, mm -hmm. take direct action. So you've got that decision, and you, you've got the aftermath. I mean, one thing in intelligence, it's really hard to dehumanize even the enemy, because intelligence, you actually get up close and know people. And, and, and so, you know, in the face of these uh, Hollywood epics that give a cartoonish view of what espionage is, people who actually have to do it bear an additional burden. It seems that the public's trust in the intelligence community is now fairly low. I don't know if it's at the lowest point historically, but 
that's at the lowest point I can remember. And this is largely the result of the, of the revelations of Edward Snowden. Uh, and we'll talk about Snowden in a minute. But the, the history of the NSA and CIA targeting American citizens precedes Snowden. And it, so you have the, the 1975 Church Committee report, right. which revealed the NSA was spying on people like Jane Fonda and Joan Baez. And, and history goes back even further than that. How do you view this history? So, so that was then. Uh, this is now. Uh, that's not acceptable behavior. Uh, I'd have to point out a technicality that probably at the time it happened, it wasn't illegal behavior, simply because the laws weren't, weren't clear about that. Mm. But in the 1970s, the great intelligence reforms of the Church Pike era, uh, American privacy and the protection of American privacy has, has become embedded in the way that NSA uh, does business. And, and so, I look, I'm very happy to talk, talk to any of my countrymen when they have a concern and to the degree allowed by law and policy, explain what it is that NSA is doing. And frankly, my life experience has been the more I explain, the more I get, oh, well, okay, that's different. I misunderstood from people who have concerns. Now, look, there are some people who just have a, at base a conspiratorial view of government, all yeah. government, even our government. So there's no convincing them. But for the for the majority of Americans, if you explain it, the, you, you'll get an adult kind of answer. Yeah, well, I, I do want to talk about specifically what people are confused about with respect to the, the NSA surveillance controversy in a minute, but sure. we'll, we'll get to Snowden. But just speaking more generally for the moment, can you say something about the legitimacy of the government keeping secrets? Because as you said, many, many people seem to think that government secrecy is always illegitimate. And they have this, right. this overarching conspiratorial view of the, the way people in power operate. And I mean, so for instance, I'm fairly amazed by the level of enthusiasm many people seem to feel for an organization like WikiLeaks or a character like Julian Assange. What are your thoughts on secrecy? Yeah. So here's the problem that, that we have. Uh, espionage is a worthy activity for a democracy. And I actually go out of my way in teaching my classes at George Mason to point out that espionage is just not compatible with American democracy. It's essential to American democracy because frightened people don't make good Democrats or Republicans. And, and so you've got this function, which is noble, worthy, and frankly, historic. The nation's first spymaster was its first president, George Washington. Mm. But it's a secret activity inside of a broader political culture that distrusts secrecy. So it never rests easy in, inside the, the American mind. I've actually come now to the conclusion that although you can't tell everybody everything, my old tribe, the, the intelligence community, is going to have to be more forthcoming about what it is it does to the broader population. Otherwise, we won't get their sanction. We won't get their legitimacy, their validation. And although, you know, when you Tell people what you're doing in terms of espionage. You shave points off of effectiveness, but I keep telling my old friends back in the community, but if you don't tell them, you're not going to get to do it in the first place. So we're just going to have to find a new, uh, a new center point for our fulcrum here between secrecy and transparency. And what is the trade-off between privacy and other civil liberties and sure. security in your view? Yeah. So I was up in British Columbia several years ago for the Provincial Security Organization's annual conference. So you, 
you can imagine kind of the tenor of, of that meeting. And, and I was asked at the conference, so what's your definition of privacy? And my answer was, privacy is the line we continuously negotiate between ourselves as unique creatures of God and ourselves as social animals. You know, between ourselves as unique and deserving privacy and secrecy about our innermost thoughts and our responsibility to the larger group of which we are a part. And the punchline in all that, it's a line that we continuously negotiate. So that, for example, the balance on September 10th, 2001 was in one place. The balance on September 12th, 2001 was in another place. And it doesn't mean that the first one was wrong. It just means we are now in different circumstances and a free people should have that conversation as to what the appropriate balance is for that moment, for those circumstances. Well, I must say that, that under the Obama administration, I was much more sanguine than I am now about having a government that's empowered to pry into our data. And I remember at the time when this was hotly debated, this, this trade-off between privacy right. and security, that many people pointed out that whatever powers we gave to an administration whose ethics and professionalism we trust would be inherited by a future administration that we might not trust. And right. this always seemed like a fair point, but I must say that I never really envisioned a person like Trump becoming president of the United States. And okay. my feelings about what I, I want our government to be able to do have been pushed around a little bit in the meantime. Sure. Now, the fact is, is that whatever powers we grant to government, we have to understand will be inherited by the worst conceivable but still possible administration we, we are uh, capable of promoting. I don't know if, how you view the current administration. I don't uh, know how constrained sure. you are in, in sharing those views. But even just speaking generically, how do you think about so, our need to anticipate these the changes? The dark side. Yeah. Right. So the good news is the guys who wrote our Constitution had about as dark a Hobbesian view of the world as you do. And so, so they baked in to the Constitution a really robust system of checks and balances. So that's one reality. The second, you know, I, have to, I have to admit, if you read the Federalist Papers, particularly the ones penned by Hamilton, they do give a lot of space for the executive when it comes to questions of national security. So, so the president under Article Two has some very powerful authorities. But you know, we talked about the 1970s before and the reforms of that era and Church Pike and all that. Mm -hmm. um, we did something odd in the 1970s, and it's still odd among Western democracies. We, we decided in the 70s, because of Watergate and Nixon, we decided to move oversight and control of something that up to that point had been entirely the province of the executive, espionage, and put a good chunk of the oversight in the Congress and even in the courts. And, uh, and I'm here to tell you, that's still odd. Other countries, our British friends, Australian friends, and so on, have nothing near that system of checks and balances as we allow the parliament, so to speak, and the courts to have a more robust role. So we, we got to witness something that, that actually should help put your mind a little bit at ease. About two weeks ago, and I, I certainly was very proud of the two men involved, to recall the open testimony of Jim Comey, the head of the FBI, and Mike Rogers, the head of NSA, in front of the House Intelligence Committee, 
And they were asked about, um, the president said, we wiretap t- Trump Tower. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there you had the head of the nation's federal police force, the FBI, Jim Comey, and the head of the nation's largest intelligence organization, Mike Rogers at NSA, simply tell the Congress in open session, that is not true. The president of the United States, the chief executive, the commander in chief is simply wrong. Only in America would you have that question asked in open session, answered in open session, and answered so candidly by, again, two very powerful intelligence figures. So I, I get the concern, all right? Uh, but but there, there, there is a strong culture inside the American intelligence services, a strong constitutional culture mm-hmm. that, that, you know, their the first reflex is this, is this legal? Is this constitutional? And again, I freely admit, you know, even Hamilton pens in his, in his papers that we give the executive an awful lot of authority when it, when it comes to national defense and hence espionage. So I take the concern, but I'm trying to, to counsel you that there's, there's no reason to be despairing about this. I will sleep uh, an extra hour tonight. Then. <laughs> oh, by the way, I, I shared your lack of vision as to this man becoming the president of the United States. Yeah. Too. You didn't get that intelligence, apparently. <laughs> no. So let's talk about Snowden and the uh, NSA surveillance controversy. And I should probably sure. give a little background here that you might not be aware of. First, our podcast listeners should know that I've invited Snowden to come on the podcast through his lawyer at the ACLU. And the lawyer responded. He's passed the invitation along. Um, this was months ago. I still haven't heard from Snowden. And the, the invitation remains open. But I can only imagine that my history with Glenn Greenwald would make him unwilling to talk to me. And the truth is, his association with Greenwald has contaminated my view of, of, of Snowden and this whole episode. And Greenwald, as I'm sure everyone knows, was one of the two primary people, along with Laura Poitras, who Snowden gave his information right. to. Right. And I mean, I just, I just happen to know through direct experience that continues to this day, that Greenwald is an extraordinarily dishonest and ideologically driven person. And he, he really does not have a journalistic bone in his body. And so the, and the fact that he was, is widely considered a journalist is really the product of, of Snowden simply having handed him the story of the decade. And he didn't, by virtue of transferring that information, give Greenwald a, a set of journalistic ethics. <laughs> so, right. so when the story broke, I knew what I thought about Greenwald, and I, and I knew what I thought about anyone who would want to give him state secrets based on a fondness for his politics, which is like nine parts, the, the masochism of Noam Chomsky, and one part, he spent too much time living in Brazil with his dogs. So I, I, I was prejudiced, frankly, against taking the whole thing at face value. But in the intervening years, I must say, Snowden has come off very well in some of his interviews, and, and I, I don't actually know what to make of him. And so I am just want to ask you first, what's your opinion of, before we get into the consequences of, sure. of what he did and, and, and what the NSA was actually doing, what's your opinion of, of Snowden? Do you take his motives at, at face value? Well, his motivation... Or his stated was, was motives. Based, sure, no, no, I understand. And, and, and look, I, I'm, I'm not in the business of challenging what, what the young man says in terms of his motivation. But his motivation was that simply... He didn't like what NSA was doing, all right? And, and I, I've got to point out, nothing that he revealed through Greenwald and Poitras and Bart Gelman and a few others, nothing he revealed was illegal. 
All right. It, and in fact, it was actually well known to the oversight committees in Congress, even the most controversial of the programs. He exposed them because he didn't like them. All right. They, 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 they disturbed him personally. He, he personally objected to them. But there is no illegality, even, even in the darkest stories uh, written about what it was he revealed. And, and so, in essence, what he did was to replace the judgment of the American political and legal process under which the espionage agencies work and replace that judgment with his own. Hmm. And then he pushed an incredible volume of American secrets out the door. I, I've said earlier and still stand by, this is the greatest hemorrhaging of legitimate American secrets in the history of the American Republic. And, and let me just, for purposes of, of discussion, concede, all right, that he raised an interesting, important issue in the 215 program, the metadata program. Everything else he pushed out the door didn't implicate your privacy or mine. Everything else he pushed out the door was how America conducts foreign surveillance. Mm. And, and, and so, you know, the, the question I ask is, so, so why did you tell the world that NSA's partner, GCHQ, intercepted Dmitry Medvedev's satellite phone during a G8 meeting in Great Britain? Mm. Where, 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 where is the privacy quotient there? Or why did you tell the South China Morning News that NSA had penetrated the computers of some Chinese universities? Where, what, what's, what Fourth Amendment right are you implicating by that? And I could go on right. with, with a whole bunch of things that, that were revealed uh, via Snowden. In fact, you know, you, you bring up a, a really good point. He gave this stuff to them. It was, it was Greenwald who decided what should or shouldn't go out the door and, and be made public. And I, I share your judgment. That that's, would not have been my choice. Yeah. Before we get into what the NSA was actually doing and what you think Americans yeah. should understand about that and, and things like the 215 program, do we know what the consequences have been of Snowden's leaks? So Rick Leggett, who is just about to leave NSA as the deputy director, was in charge of the damage assessment afterward. And, and Rick allowed himself in a, in a public appearance not too many weeks ago that they are, they are now approaching about a thousand legitimate foreign intelligence targets who have changed their methodology of communicating based upon what had been revealed in, in, in that, that massive volume of Snowden leaks and follow-on stories. And so what you got is NSA not being able to do what it did previously. Now, to be perfectly honest, all advantage in SIGINT, signals intelligence, all advantage is transient. You gain targets, you lose targets, targets move, and so on. Uh, and so over time, NSA will, will reestablish the kinds of things I think you would want it to do, but there will be a gap. It will take mm -hmm. time, and it's going to cost a lot of money. And do you, do you think Snowden should be prosecuted for what he did? I mean, what, do you, what do you think should happen to him if he came back to the States? And at the oh, moment, yeah. is he a Russian asset? Do we think we, he's— I don't, have any re I don't have any data on which to base that, all right? And so I don't, so I don't say that. Uh, now, other people have offered hypotheses that how could a 28, 29-year-old contractor pull this off without help and so on? But, you know, but that's, that's deductive reasoning. I'm an intel guy. We go inductive. And so I got, I got to have data before I begin to draw any of those kinds of conclusions. Mm. So I don't. All right. I just say he's, he is what he says he is. 
But what he says he is uh, has cost the United States and its security and, the, and the, frankly, the security of its friends very dearly. So, yeah, I think he ought to be really prosecuted if he should ever return here. So let's talk about the 215 program, the mm-hmm. distinction between metadata and listening to people's calls. What was the NSA actually doing and what do you think most people think they were doing? So I can actually give you a real good answer on the actually, because I started this. Mm. We started this the first week of October 2001. And what we did was to go to the American telecom providers and have them forward to us almost continuously what you and I used to call our phone bill. <laughs> Remember, mm. we used to have to pay for it by the minute, by the call. That unreadable document. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, but, but, the, but the companies, for their own you know, network management and billing reasons, keep those records. And so we asked and they forwarded to us the metadata of American calls, both within America and to and from America, the metadata, the fact of the call, this number called that number at this time for that long. And, you know, I no, no reason to hide anything here. We built, built up a gajillion record database of all those calls. But access to the database was extremely limited. And the only way we used the database was, for example, we roll up a safe house in Yemen and we come across a guy based on his pocket litter, you know, the stuff he's carrying with him. Oh, this is a very bad guy. And he's affiliated with Al-Qaeda. Oh, he's got a cell phone. I wonder if that phone has ever called America. And what we are able to do, because we now have this historical record of all these calls, is we can kind of walk up to that database, so to speak, and say, hey, anybody in here ever talk to this phone I just picked up? And if a number in, say, Queens raises its hand and says, well, yeah, I talked to him, we then get to ask the number in Queens, who do you talk to? That's it. That's the 215 program. It was designed to give us the opportunity to establish linkage between any known terrorist numbers and activity inside inside the United States. Now, that's the facts of the case. Mm. Um, I, I think in one year, and I've forgotten, it, it, it may have been like 2012, maybe, 2011, NSA went up to that database like I just described and about 220 times said, hey, did anybody talk to this number? So that's the reality. The, the, the stories that went out, and I, look, I, I would watch this on the news months later after NSA and others had tried to explain and then if that number was of interest, they just click on that number and they can then hear the conversation that took place six months ago. I mean, that is certainly a violation of the laws of the United States, but it's also a violation of the laws of physics. Hmm. All right. There's no way you can click on the number in a metadata database and get the content of calls passed. I, I don't in any way complain about people being concerned about the government, in my case, having a record of my calls to my brother in Pittsburgh, all right, which was what's in that database, Mm. along with everyone else's calls. But the point we are trying to make is it was done for a specific purpose. It was post 9-11. And the only reason you could query that database was for counterterrorism purposes. And in the way I just suggested to you, which is a very, very limited usage. And look, I, I get it. After I get done with that discussion, you know, a lot of good Americans go, oh, well, that's a little bit different, but I still don't want you doing it. And, and you talked earlier about the, 
kind of the, the reputation of the intelligence community. Actually, I think that's okay. The problem we have is this broad, deep, general distrust of all things government right now. Yeah. And, and, and intelligence is wrapped up in, in that overall distrust. So what is the reality of being able to listen to the content of calls and, 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 and monitor the content of communications? So shortly after 9-11, the president gave us some extraordinary authorities to listen to content of calls entering or leaving the United States when we had reason to believe that one or both ends was affiliated with international terrorism, with, with al-Qaeda. Later, that was changed, all right? And, and you, you, you mentioned you know, your comfort with President Obama and your discomfort with President Trump. One of, the mo- one of the more surprising things in all of this is how much President Obama's surveillance policies were the same as President Bush's surveillance mm-hmm. policies. Yeah. And, and, and it was President Bush that actually had the law changed that allowed N- NSA to better monitor these, these kinds of calls we're talking about here, terrorist-related calls, even if one end was in uh, the, the, the United States. And another program that, that Snowden revealed, not 215, but 702, which has to do with emails, uh, either stored in the United States or transiting the United States, uh, the, the Congress actually gave NSA a, a great deal of authority to keep an eye on foreign-based emails that happened to be transiting or having been stored here uh, in the United States. Is the government doing anything differently as a result of the Snowden leaks, or do the same authorities exist? See, you know, you know, that's what. That thank you. That's a great question. All right. Despite all the storm drawn about about Snowden, in terms of the law, the only thing that's changed is all that metadata you and I have been talking about. Mm. We, we let the phone companies keep it. NSA still gets to ask the question: Hey, did anybody here talk to this phone? But we let the phone companies keep it. That's a little more clumsy. Than the, than the way NSA was doing it earlier. I call it that 85% solution. But that's it. That's the only change in law. Now, we have, you, you mentioned the allegations that we were listening to Angela Merkel. Mm. President Obama broadly stated we weren't going to be listening to some foreign leaders we have been listening to in the past. That's purely voluntary. And President Obama probably walked some of those back before he left office, too. And, and other than that, no, we're, we're still doing what we were doing. Mm. Well, I know you're pressed for time. I have two more questions for you before you uh, go on to your next meeting. I know you are quite worried about the implications of cyber terrorism and cyber war. Just give me your your potted uh, worries on that topic. Sure. We we have, as a species, decided to put a whole bunch of things that used to be physical or we used to keep in our safe or our desk or at least in our wallet and decide to put them in our phone, and which then makes it accessible to people who would want to do us harm, either to steal our information, to corrupt our information, to damage our networks, or even to take over control devices that are computer controlled and to create physical destruction. So we, we've entered a whole new, new world of how it is we have to defend ourselves and protect ourselves because we've rushed into this new domain, this cyber domain, uh, so quickly because it's so empowering. We can do things at scale. You and I can do things at home that 
only big government institutions used to be able to do because mm. of the digital domain. But with that comes the dangers that uh, as, as empowered as it makes you and me to do things, it empowers people who wish us harm too. Yeah, which, which brings me to the last question. What is your view of the Russian hacking of the 2016 presidential election and the attendant issues of fake news and effective propaganda? How, how have you viewed the last few months? Yeah, so um, the Russians did it. It's a high-confidence judge of the American intelligence community. They did it to affect the election. They stole the data, and they washed the data through our friend Julian Assange, we talked about earlier, and some other platforms. And then they put out an army of trolls to touch the data so that Google's algorithms thought that these were trending things, so they would come uh, very much in, into our consciousness. Uh, and so it's an incredible, technically, uh, it's called a covert influence campaign, and it's the most successful covert influence campaign in the history of covert influence campaigns. Now, I do point out, you know, somebody who used to run CIA, and, you know, my agency, I can't claim has never been involved in anything like this in its history. Mm -hmm. Covert influence campaigns do not create fractures in a society. They exploit fractures in a society and make them worse. And so I think the first teaching point I walk away with after saying the Russians did this, first teaching point I would walk away with is shame on us for giving them the opportunity by being so fractured in our political discourse. Mm. Well, General Hayden, really, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Thank yeah. you. Best of luck. Bye-bye. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You also get access to advanced tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.